0: This is Body Talk, where we explore your inner universe. Welcome to Body Talk. My guest today, I'm so excited to have, I, I'm not even sure how to uh, describe this person to you, except to say he is an MD. He is a liver pathologist. He's a soon-to-be book author, although he has published numerous papers. He's a practicing Buddhist. He's a lot of different things, which makes him a fantastic guest. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, welcome, Neil Thies. Hi there. (laughs) (laughs) You can see him wave. If you look really closely into uh, whatever, into your headphones right now, you'll you'll see him waving. So there's so many different places we could start, Neil, but uh, let's start with what is often thought of as the most basic unit of life, Uh, at least that's what we're often taught in school, and that's the cell. Is that an accurate way to look at the cell in 2021?
1: It is accurate, but it is not complete.
0: And what and would make it complete?
1: Are you aware of why we call the cell the cell?
0: Because uh, it had it when they looked at it, it looked like something with roughly four walls. So they were thinking of like a monk's cell in uh, monasteries. Yeah.
1: yeah, precisely. So up until we had the microscope. I mean that definition required the ability to look microscopically and so until we had that ability, with the development of the microscope two to 300 years ago. It was a matter of philosophy, and this was a big debate from Greek philosophy on whether the body was comprised of indivisible subunits that they referred to as atoms. So it was not only a debate about the nature of the body, but the nature of physical substance. Or is because the body is fluid in a fashion, the way it moves, different than a table, then hear me knocking? Mm -hmm. That could the body be an endlessly divisible fluid continuum? And this was the debate and it was a purely philosophical debate.
0: But how do you cut water? I mean, divisible fluid continuum?
1: No, right, exactly. So it's just, it's fluid. And so there's no individual subunit and that's distinct. And when they looked under the microscope, the first thing they saw were cell membranes and cell walls and plants, and that defined an empty box. And you can't take a box and break it apart and get smaller boxes. You just get fragments of wall and ceiling and floor. Looking at it, exactly as you said, this looked like uh, an empty room. And monks and prisoners who lived in their cells had no furniture. So that's why they called it a cell, because it was devoid of furniture.
0: And somewhere down the line, the mitochondria moved in.
1: Right. And nuclei nuclei first, actually, um, they started to develop ways to chemically stain tissues so you could see different colors. And so they saw nuclei, and then they saw mitochondria and Golgi and endoplasmic reticulum and the furniture filled in. Mm -hmm. But but that was like 20 years later. So at that moment they saw those boxes or cells, that ended the debate. The body was not an endlessly divisible fluid continuum. It was Mm -hmm. made of atoms and these were called cells and that was the birth of cell doctrine. And when we say Western medicine or Western biology, What we mean is cell doctrine.
0: Okay. So we're going back to like the, was it the 1600s or the 1800s with Lewin hook and all those. 1700s. 1700s. Okay. Yeah. All right. Now our microscopes have improved a lot in 300 years. Yes. So, so how, how has our improved vision changed the way we think about what we look at when we look at those cells today?
1: well and this gets to the heart of when does a thing look like a thing and when does it cease to <laughs>
0: <be>? <laughs> the cosmic zoom movie remember the cosmic zoom movie
1: yeah yeah yeah, yeah no it's, yeah. And it's precisely that it's precisely mm-hmm. that. so at the microscopic level the cell is a thing at the everyday level of scale the body is a thing the way a flock of starlings in the sky looks like you know a murmuration of starling looks like this thing in the sky but if you know what you're looking at you know it's comprised of birds Mm -hmm. but it looks like a thing so bodies look like a thing but at the microscopic level the body disappears and what you see is cells and extracellular matrix so Where's the body at the molecular, at the cellular level, at the microscopic level? It ceases to exist. Your body becomes a community of interacting cells. And we can talk later about how it's not necessarily just human cells. That's a whole other Mm -hmm. line. (laughs) So with new imaging, as you ask, when you look at a cell up close, really up close, dive in, what happens to the cell? It disappears. It's just biomolecules floating in water.
0: So what became, what became of the cell wall, which by the time I was a young science student, it was a semi-permeable membrane. Uh, right. How is that look? Is it still looked at as a semi-permeable membrane now or has that thinking changed?
1: No, that, that's precisely it, actually. The people who gave birth to cell doctrine, mm-hmm. they assumed it was impermeable, partly because they were looking at, at cell walls and plants, which are, I think, more impermeable, if not completely impermeable stuff. I'm yeah, much much sure. more
0: It's cellulose based and that's much tougher Before stuff.
1: Before I even got into um, the way I detail things in terms of complexity theory, I was thinking, what if the technology had been different and instead of seeing cell membranes first, they had seen nuclei. Then, mm. because the technology was different, some were fractile property of nuclei, made them visible to the, the first microscopes. Then they would have said, oh, the body is an endlessly divisible fluid continuum in which there are these little balls floating. Mm-hmm. We'll figure out what those balls are. Yeah. And then 20 years later, when they were able to see cell membranes, they wouldn't have said, oh, we were wrong. The body is made of cells. They would have said, oh, there's semi-permeable partitioning of the fluid compartment. So they would have modified it, but they wouldn't have. we would have a fluid model of the body as the basis of Western medicine and Western biology, not a cell model. What we know about cell membranes is that they are variably permeable and impermeable. They comprise molecules that can dissolve in water easily and those that can't, that are lipids. And so the lipids face out because they sort of can't dissolve into the water surrounding them and the water creating the water-soluble leaflets in between to face each other, and you have this bilayer, it's called, that keeps itself intact. But at the electron scanning level and lower, there's no wall there. It's a bunch of biomolecules that have this uh, structure and so organize themselves mm-hmm. in this very specific fa- fashion because they're floating in water. So, so is
0: it, you say they have a specific structure. Do they have a... They have a way of connecting at the molecular level, or is it a, no, movement, no, no, like no. a vibration? Or
1: think of how you pour, and it works exactly like this. Um, mm-hmm. think of how you pour oil in water, and you get these oil droplets.
0: Right.
1: Now imagine that you have a molecule that has one end that can dissolve in water, and one end can dissolve in fat. Okay. What are those molecules going to they're going to line up along that fat droplet and create a membrane The with the, the fat-soluble part in the the lipid droplet, in the oil droplet, mm-hmm. and the water-soluble part facing out. Now what happens when you actually have and this I'm not going to be able to go into in detail because <laughs> I like okay. cute level stuff, not molecular stuff. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Remember the pictures from medical school mm-hmm. of how the lipid uh soluble part of the the biomolecules that create the cell membrane are facing they wind up orienting the soluble parts inward and the 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 lipid parts facing outward and because the fat can't dissolve into that water it creates this alignment in this double layer now things can dissolve directly through that if they're small enough but, and can deal with the electrical charges of these molecules as well. So there's a whole variety of quantum effects, electrical effects, um, atomic effects that are going on here. But then we also know that there are other molecules that form complex structures that span that membrane that allow things to flow in or pump things out.
0: So those would be almost like the molecular of, of bridges going from yeah. one area to another area with a boundary layer of water
1: in between. Yeah, or sometimes uh, pumping systems. Okay. You, in, a, in a sewage treatment plant. <laughs> <laughs> to, and, and literally that's true. To some extent, they're getting mm-hmm. rid of respiratory products that need to get out of the cell.
0: Sure. Do you ever? How often do you walk around and just look at the world and go, wow, everything that we have on the inside, we have figured out how to create and manifest a version of it on the outside world?
1: Oh, uh, I thought you were going somewhere else. <laughs>
0: we can go there around. too.
1: <laughs> How often do you walk around thinking, "Wow, things are like self-organizing, like bodies all over the place." The way people are moving <laughs> down the sidewalk, and that tree going from winter to spring, and blah blah blah. That okay. all the time. How mm-hmm. often do you walk around and think, "Oh, we're managing to make things in the human world that mimic the biological world mm-hmm. almost ever because we don't." Okay. Generally, what we do is we build machines. And I think this is a real problem for Western medicine and Western biology, independent of cell doctrine, though reflected through that, is that there is this dominant view that the body is comprised of many little machines that interact with each other. But machines, by their nature, always do exactly the same thing, they can't change biology changes dynamically all the time your car is not going to go from being i don't know anything about cars uh okay uh, me not so much either so to uh uh bmw that doesn't happen it's going to be what it was made to be it breaks down
0: Mm -hmm. it's not going to grow a fifth wheel
1: no the internet is this organic thing but very little that humans build Um, reflects the the nature of living systems. And that's a problem because the language we use defines how we conceive of doing things. And so we don't talk about biomolecules as being interactive biologic agents. We talk about them being molecular motors,
0: Yes, and every documentary, this is one of my biggest bugbears, every documentary I've ever seen on the human body starts with the human body is the most amazing machine. Right. And it's wrong, not. Wrong. <laughs>
1: And yes. they talk about some of the research I do is in stem cell biology. And there's, you know, theoretically, that should lead to our ability to create tissues and organs for transplant. But it mm-hmm. has not. Why not? Yeah, why not? Why not? Why not? Yeah. <laughs> because we talk about tissue engineering you engineer a machine Mm -hmm. i i i there was this paper that came out five to ten years ago this lovely paper from japan where they had taken you know people liver pathology is my thing liver disease so artificial livers is a thing yeah they don't work. except it's not
0: a thing but it's a thing
1: Exactly. we'll get to so, that we'll get to that well literally it's not a thing we don't really have any good artificial livers it hasn't even gotten to be a thing okay a thing. <laughs> um, so one of the one of the ways in which people have thought to create this is you know if you organize cells and put them in this pattern they will make liver tissue that works only so far this other group in japan thought what if we take a mix of cells that make up the liver and put them in the mesenteric fat pad of a mouse. So and just let's, the,
0: let's put them in the environment that they, can, that they would thrive in?
1: That they can interact in as okay. well as. Okay. And then let's see what they do. And what they did was they made little tiny, mini functional liver units. Wow. Right. So they invited me and two other colleagues of mine from the stem cell world, one person who never agrees with me on anything. One <laughs> yeah. who agrees with me a lot but doesn't usually say so publicly. And uh, this was in Nature Medicine, and so you know it's a high level thing. And yeah, they asked three to write one columns worth commentary on this article. Mm-hmm. The other two wrote about how, well, these really weren't livers. <laughs> They don't do everything a liver does. It's an overreach to call it liver tissue, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Not surprisingly, I wrote this little thing that said, this points out how organs are not things one builds. Organs are things one cultivates. Mm. And that this in terms of tissue engineering. Then, of course, it's not a liver because it isn't doing the job of the liver machine yet. But if you think of it in terms of an ecosystem of cells creating a functional unit, this is how biology works.
0: So would this be an example of epigenetics, what they are oh. trying to do, or am I getting too far afield?
1: Uh, certainly epigenetics is involved in it because, well, this gets back to, is a cell a thing? <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Why does a cell beha- change its behavior? This is actually my entry point into all of this stuff. Back in 1999, I published a paper that showed that livers had stem cells. Up until the year 1999, 2000, the only organs where people really believed there were stem cells were the bone marrow producing the blood cells, the lining of the digestive tract, and the skin surface, the epidermis. And there was argument about stem cells for other organs. The brain certainly had no stem cells. The heart certainly had no stem cells. The liver, big debate, but most people thought it didn't. And then over the course of those two years, I mean, now it's a commonplace. Everything has stem cells, but that's 20 year old knowledge, not older. My group showed that the liver had stem cells definitively. And oddly, because I'm a liver pathologist, I have human tissues to work with. We didn't show it in mice. It was eventually proven in mice and rats and whatever. We showed it in human tissues. At the same time in 1999, there were three papers published in Science. No, sorry, 2000. So this was December, 1999. A friend of mine who I met through this research actually was looking at bone marrow, that could become liver, and he was doing rat experiments. Okay, so the bone and, marrow
0: cells would turn into liver cells. Am I understanding right, that correctly? Okay, right.
1: they would travel to the liver and become liver cells. I was looking at the same thing after figuring out the liver stem cell story, because my liver stem cell story and the niche for the stem cells in the liver, where its anatomic location is, are locations are, <laughs> um, explained all the animal data except for one experiment. So it was a pretty complete theory I had, but there was this one experiment. And the only way to get around that experiment was to think that there must be a source for stem cells outside of the liver. And this is the nature of serendipity in my life. (laughs) Good thing to cultivate. Yeah. A friend of mine, one of my colleagues in the pathology department, This is I was at NYU at this point, knew I was doing stuff with stem cells and saw a stem cell article in science. Now, I don't read science. (laughs) Um, Sometimes I more often stumble into science or nature or cell because I now do basic science work. But back in those days, I read the clinical liver journals and pathology journals. I didn't look at science. But this guy liked science, generally, and specifically the journal science. And there was a paper which showed that bone marrow cells had become skeletal muscle cells. Now, that's not supposed to happen, right? Cell doctrine says that every cell derives from some other cell. People worked out the way those derivations happened. And experiments showed that through embryonic, fetal, postnatal, teenager, <laughs> adult <laughs> development, mm-hmm. cells always went in one direction and they never went backwards and they never went across Boundaries that they had passed through already. Yeah, so it was a, so very, a bone very
0: prescribed uh, cellular evolution,
1: machine-like, one might say. Yes. Okay. And so, bone marrow can only give rise to blood. Maybe skeletal muscle has stem cells. Whether it does or not, all muscle cells derive from muscle cells. But this experiment showed that bone marrow could maybe turn into muscle. This kind of made a little sense because they're both uh derived from the mesodermal layer of the embryo so the embryo when it first forms develops into three levels Mm -hmm. endoderm which becomes the nervous system largely becomes the nervous system and the skin and um ectoderm sorry (laughs) it becomes the nervous system and (laughs) the skin yeah exo meaning outside yes and the original Form of the nervous system is outside the embryo on the surface. It closes in on itself and development, but it's mm-hmm. ecto outside. Endoderm, the inside, gives rise to all the visceral organs mostly. And the mesoderm in the middle gives rise to things like muscle and connective tissue, the kidneys, oddly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um Jaap van der Waal talks about the, the Yes, there the, is no, the, no third the nepro- layer.
0: There is no third layer. It's meso, it's the middle, it's the You know, you got the Oreo cookie on either side and the creamy filling in the middle. That's the meso,
1: Right. So some of your your listeners may go, oh, is that what Yap's talking about? Yeah, this is what Yap's talking about. So muscle and bone marrow both derive from the mesoderm. So maybe that makes sense. Mm -hmm. There's still, it's a mesodermal tissue going to a mesodermal tissue. But this guy showed me this article, which I would never have seen. And all of a sudden I thought, could bone marrow go to the liver. It kind of made also similar partial sense because bone marrow doesn't start in the bone marrow. All your blood cells in fetal development start in the liver. All your blood is made by cells in the liver. Mm -hmm. And after you're born, the whole thing shifts over to the bone marrow. It can actually reactivate in the liver in certain disease states. Like if your bone marrow If you get chemotherapy and it wipes out your bone marrow, your liver starts to produce blood again. So, that's fantastic.
0: That is absolutely fantastic. I did not know that. Yeah.
1: The bodies are fantastic.
0: They are. They are. Yeah. There's a whole universe in there. So,
1: right. So, as above, so below. below. Uh, (laughs) I had this idea, this crazy idea could bone marrow turn into liver? I had gone to Yale on a stem cell sabbatical uh, to work with Jim Crawford, a liver pathologist friend who was also a basic scientist. He was gonna teach me to become a basic scientist and do lab work to explore my stem cell niche in the liver. But when I got there, I said to him, because this is all within a month, but I said, you know, I got this other idea about bone marrow, which is a little crazy. And um, anyone here I could talk to about it? And he said, well, Diane Kraus, uh, is the bio- bone marrow stem cell biologist just upstairs. Why don't you go talk to her? So I went and I knocked on her door. Uh, it turns out we're both pathologists. We're both gay. We're both German Jews. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, her attitude was, I don't really think this would work, but it'll be fun working with you. <laughs> so so nice. we started working together on this question. My three-month stay at Yale turned into two years. Wow. And what we showed is bone marrow was turning into liver. And this guy in Pittsburgh, Brian Peterson, who was the first to publish this, <clears> heard <throat> through the grapevine that we were working on this, so he called me to find out what was going on. And we became friends for this rather than competitors, which is the way science good science should happen. Yes, it is the way good science He was working happen. in rats. He had a different reason, yeah, but it usually doesn't. Um, he had his own reason for thinking bone marrow liver that was independent. He was working in rats. We were working in mice. We agreed our work came together at about the same time. We agreed to try to publish around the same time. And he was going to send his paper to science and we would send our paper to nature, two of the top tiered journals, his got accepted, ours got rejected. <laughs> we went through several Things Ours finally got published in January of 2000 in the same journal by happenstance the month after we published our liver stem cell niche in humans. So those two things came together. Meanwhile, his work was grouped with two other papers, the skeletal muscle paper and another group showing bone marrow to brain. So that's, yeah, bone marrow to skeletal muscle mesoderm. Bone marrow to brain, ectoderm. ectoderm yeah. Bone to, uh, liver, endoderm. Endoderm. Yeah, so science called those three papers the science discovery of the year for 1999. Uh, yeah, I can see why.
0: Marrow. The first thing that occurs to me in listening to that, if, if bone marrow is that, I'm going to use a made-up word here, polyadaptive, because I'm sure there's another word that I don't yeah. know, but polyadaptive. Good word. Uh, thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, what What is bone marrow cancer? And is that like, the, there's no good cancer, but is, is that why bone marrow cancer can be particularly strange in the way it metastasizes and expresses itself? No. Okay.
1: <laughs> good. <laughs> I like that
0: answer. I like that answer.
1: <laughs> but the reason isn't because bone marrow cancer can't do crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's, as this opened up what became this field of stem cell plasticity, which is polyadaptive, uh, po- what was your word? That was a good uh, word. Polyadaptive. Poly- yeah. So we call a cell being polyadaptive plastic. That became the jargon word. Mm-hmm. And this became the whole world of stem cell plasticity. Um, meaning that stem cells for one organ could be plastic or polyadaptive and feed into stem cell populations of other organs. And it turns out that stem cells of any organ can be put in any other organ. This actually led to our paper because, again, perspective is so important. Diane and I are pathologists. So when we did our bone marrow to liver transplant experiments in mice, I don't do mouse experiments anymore, for the most part. But this was my—it's okay. a little okay. creepy to me.
0: Yeah, sorry. But yeah, I had I had Science. to dissect a freshly euthanized rat, and it was creepy, no question.
1: Yeah, yeah, Science. yeah. But this is how you get some answers because you can't do this in humans easily.
0: No, 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 no. Um, they, they they protest too much.
1: But we do um, bone marrow transplants in from one mouse to another we did male mice into female mice so we could use the Y chromosome, which defines a male animal, which isn't present in the female. And we could see where you had Y chromosome cells. And because Diane and our pathologists, when we killed our animals, we didn't just take out the liver, which my friend Brian Peterson did. He only looked at the liver and threw the rest of the mouse away. Oh. We looked, we did autopsies on our mice and we found cells all over the place. And this led to our biggest paper, which was um, in Cell, which is the biggest bioscience journal, um, in May of 2001. And it was that paper that led to George Bush's address to the nation about stem cells. So the, the argument had been, you can't use embryonic stem cells because abortion is unethical. Our work said you don't have to use embryonic stem cells because adult stem cells can do everything. And so that was the science discovery of the year was the bone marrow stem cells could do mesoderm, endoderm, ectoderm, just like embryonic stem cells. But they didn't show that there was one cell that could do all three. Maybe the bone marrow had separate stem cells. Maybe the bone marrow had a different stem cell for every organ. To show that there was true cell plasticity, you had to show that one single cell turned into all these things. And we worked with a guy at Hopkins named Saul Sharkis. Unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago, but he was one of the few people at the time who could do single cell bone marrow transplants in mice. And he happened Diane. Yeah.
0: That sounds incredibly delicate.
1: Yes. (laughs) Something that would be completely ummed me. And Diane was friends with him and colleagues with him. He said, well, I've already got some mice that I've done that with, because I'm looking at their spleens. Do you want to take the other organs? So I went to, down to Johns Hopkins on the train with a bottle of formaldehyde in my backpack, and <laughs> <laughs> creepy, <laughs> um, which, then, which then exploded in my backpack on the taxi on the way to the hotel. And the taxi oh. driver's like, what do you smell?
0: Oh, <laughs> man. Couch. Oh, that's worse, that's yeah, worse.
1: Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. Adventures in science. So we went and looked at, we did the autopsies on mice and we looked at all the other organs. And sure enough, one single cell in the bone marrow had turned into all these different tissues. And that proved that a single bone marrow stem, adult stem cell was plastic and could do everything embryonic stem cells could do. And that gave the anti-abortion lobby the opportunity to say, we don't need to do embryonic stem cells. And that allowed George Bush to go and say, we don't need to do embryonic stem cells, so I'll only allow cell line, embryonic stem cell lines that are already developed, but there will be no further development. Then the anti-abortion crowd started to reach out to me to come speak to their groups, because I was their hero. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and I said, I don't think you really want this gay Jewish Buddhist New Yorker coming down <laughs> to talk to you. <laughs> Bless your, no, I heart. Bless your heart,
0: Neil.
1: <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I went there and they stopped calling me. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah, but it's this... fair enough.
0: Body Talk will be back with more adventures in science with our guest Neil Theis after the break. Welcome back to Body Talk with our guest Neil Theis.
1: <laughs> you asked about epigenetics.
0: Yes, I did. Yes, I did.
1: In the old paradigm, pre-cell plasticity, people thought that once ge- genes get turned on, they are turned on. And once they get turned off, they are turned off. Yes. And epigenetics are the means by which cells turn genes on and off. And there was this idea that cells only went left to right, hierarchical from develop, you know, from birth to adulthood. And they could never move around or shift or change their pattern. How they changed their pattern is through epigenetics. And it turns out that there is no, you know, a gene being turned off is called gene restriction. And it was thought that gene restrictions were permanent because the epigenetics couldn't undo them. Mm-hmm. And what this work opened up is that, in fact, there was a whole field of epigenetics happening parallel, but they weren't talking to each other that showed that epigenetically everything could be reversed. Gene expression was always transforming itself. So any cell can become any other cell. The question is, how likely is it to happen?
0: Mm -hmm. Can can it be induced to create a specific goal or medical treatment? Yeah.
1: Right. And so what we were showing in the body is that the body can do this all over the place and all cancers To some extent, what they're doing is they're upping the ante on that kind of cell transformation. They're becoming wildly crazy. Um, And so it's not just bone marrow cancers that are special. It's every cancer, to some extent, that has that capacity. They're becoming more plastic than they should be. And it doesn't matter where they come from, because every cell has this potential.
0: I often heard that cancer is in the body, or every cell could become cancerous. Now that makes sense in a way it never made sense before.
1: We can make more sense out of that. Mm -hmm. We can make it really concrete. And this is governed by principles from complexity theory, which is how things become complex from simple interactions. And so there are four components that are really very simple. One, there have to be a lot of them. Ants as an example. But everything I say about ants, think about cells. Okay. Ants form colonies. Like the starlings I mentioned before, from a distance, a colony looks like a solid thing on the ground. But when you go up close, you see it's interacting ants. And the ants are forming food lines, and they're creating cemeteries for dead ants, and they're creating refuse dumps for garbage. Um, They may be growing fungus in fungal farms. They do very complex things. It's not because there's an ant planning all of this. The queen ant has a reproductive function. There's no ant overseeing everything. They simply have nine pheromone signals and they respond to temperature and touch. And out of those interactions, new things happen. They self-organize. How they do that in part, and this is the cancer question, is because there are negative feedback loops and positive feedback loops in the system. I don't mean negative as in good and positive as in bad. Right. Negative as in, yeah. Negative is like an air conditioner.
0: It's like a, monitor, a way to monitor based on input.
1: And keep things within a life-supporting cycle, so, a homeostatic range.
0: So our internal body temperature is is a potential example of a negative, uh, a negative feedback loop?
1: Right. If your body temperature goes up, you start sweating, dispensing heat into the environment. Mm. If your body temperature goes down, you start to shiver, create more kinetic energy, warm yourself up. So that's a homeostatic, cycle. good example. <laughs> I hadn't thought of using that as an example before, that's good, thank you. A positive feedback loop is one that goes out of control, you know, with a air conditioner, the colder the, the colder the room gets the higher the air conditioner turns on so it gets colder and colder and colder and colder. Think about having a fever. Okay, suddenly your body is jumping past its limits. And so it's in a positive feedback loop that eventually gets shut down. But for a limited time, it's exploding. Complex systems like technosphere and ants and human bodies have to have a predominance of homeostatic feedback loops the positive ones can't predominate because there will be no self-organization that's coherent and self-sustaining. You need that homeostasis. This is the thing with cancer. Cells interact with each other to keep each other within bounds. So there's something called contact inhibition, for example, in some cells and some tissues where a cell coming up against another cell tells it don't divide. But if one of those cells dies, and suddenly there's a hole, contact inhibition is eliminated. The cell that has lost contact that's still alive will now divide to replace its neighbor. And then there's contact inhibition again and it stops dividing. So negative feedback loops. Mm -hmm. The epigenetics of cancer and the genetics of cancer can eliminate contact inhibition. So now a cell has a neighbor but it doesn't hear the signal and keeps dividing and keeps dividing and keeps dividing. There's no So you've eliminated cancer is the progressive elimination of homeostatic negative feedback loops till the positive feedback loops predominate and positive feedback loops will organize into large-scale structures the way an ant colony does but an ant colony organizes itself in a way to sustain itself and adapt if the environment changes. Cancer or hurricanes or economic bubbles or war fevers, you've eliminated the negative feedback loops. They create these structures, but they are energy expending and self-limiting. They explode and then they collapse. That's not a lot. That's not something that can can stay alive. This is what cancer is in the body. If you look at cells, as technosphere creatures, or ants, or starlings, or us. The third thing, I already sort of stated, there's no top-down planning, there's no actual leader. Leaders think they're leading, but they're wrong. <laughs> if they, if leaders, if leaders could think that they're leading, Trump would still be president. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The fourth thing, and this is really why things are not things, is that there has to be limited randomness in the system quenched disorder is another way to say it yeah that's the sciencey way to say it yeah exactly okay but it comes in really good for the biomolecule thing if we go back there limited randomness if you if the thing about machines is there's no randomness it can only ever react exactly the same way So eventually, if a room gets hotter and hotter and hotter, the air conditioner is going to break down because it just isn't up to the task. It can't change. It can't can't
0: adapt to the environment.
1: Right. So if the interactions within a system are too random, they have no order to them at all. You just get literal chaos. There's no structure. If you have no randomness, you have a machine. It gets cold outside and you don't start to shiver the shivering is part of the randomness that comes into the system. That's what allows that to to be explored. So Stuart Kaufman, who's one of the founders of complexity theory, talked about adjacent possibles, that living systems, complex systems, had a range of possibilities before them. And if the environment changed, then those adjacent possibles could be explored to adapt for adaptive uh, potential. Sure. Machines have no adjacent possibles. They have no adjacent possibles. And that adjacent, those adjacent possibles are made possible because there is this limited randomness in the system. So you look at a line of ants and every ant is following the food line. But if you go lean in and look closer, there's always 2 to 4% of the ants that are not following the line. They're off doing other stuff. It turns out that if, if you put your foot in the middle of the line and interrupt it, the ants of the food line aren't the ones that find the root around your foot. It's the ones that aren't part of the food line that find the way around your foot and establish a new line. Or when the food source runs out, it's the ants that are exploring other turf that find the new food source and start to establish the new food line with their signal.
0: Is there an equivalent metaphor, something in the body that works just in the way you describe the food and the ant and the foot?
1: It isn't a metaphor. It is Even the thing. <laughs> yeah. So people said, well, you've proven cell plasticity that it can happen, but it doesn't happen much. And we realized that's because the cell plasticity is the limited randomness in the system. One of the points of limited randomness that allows things to be flexible. So if you have a wound that can't heal from the local cells, there's that backup reserve of cells from the bone marrow or from the lung or from from wherever else that can also have that potential and explore a different way to heal the wound. Before cell plasticity, people thought that every cell could only become a certain number of cell types. It was deterministic. There was no randomness. Then there was a small population of people who said, no, 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 cells have random potential. It's distribution. You get a bell curve like you would in a general population. What's likely to happen? And that was dismissed as, well, that's because your experiment wasn't perfect. (laughs) No, it's the nature of living systems. There's (laughs) randomness. My question was, if cells have randomness, but they are made of biomolecules, do biomolecules have randomness? Do and so have... the bi- right so where's the randomness and this is why i like the word quench disorder and this is actually going to come back to something i want to ask you okay all right um change. T- <laughs> hey, t-
0: okay i know we can flip-flop here i'm comfortable with that
1: below the cellular level the cell disappears into biomolecules floating in water we are taught that the machine components the little the molecules that form movement, like for action, for example, actin and myosin and muscle fibers, you know, a lot of your people are either using their bodies or working with bodies and are focused significantly at some point, if not totally on muscles.
0: Well, on fascia and connective tissue, but
1: but but
0: they're muscle adjacent. No,
1: I know but your audience for this may be far larger. So muscle cells are filled with proteins called actin and myosin, Mm -hmm. and they create the contraction abilities of a muscle cell, and that's how muscles move. And actin is this straight filament, and myosin has an elbow bend and attaches at one point. And the dogma is that an energy molecule, ATP, binds to the myosin filament and when it breaks up it creates energy that allows the elbow joint to bend it moves and this happens over and over again and the myosin filament crawls along the actin filament and that's how you get contraction
0: it's like it uh there's a constant series of micro sneezes it's like this little moving irritant it goes and your elbow moves yeah
1: Mm -hmm. this is why you're such a good author Um, thank you yeah um I can't do that like you do um I'll need to show you a draft of my book so this is one of those weird quench disorder limited randomness things in the emerging self-organization of my science I was at a stem cell meeting in Switzerland and there was this I had a break and there was this session going on next door and I walked by the door and it sounded interesting and I went in and it was this guy from Japan named Toshio Yanagida, And people had figured out how actin and myosin work by doing large-scale experiments with lots of molecules and looking at the average things that were going on. He developed a technique that is now widely used to look at a single actin and myosin pair using laser tweezers <laughs> <laughs> to anchor the actin filament under a fluorescent microscope. And then he put a fluorescently tagged myosin filament, attached it to the actin filament in water. What you would expect is you would add ATP and the the molecule would start to do its thing. Yeah. That's not what happened.
0: I thought you were going to say that.
1: (laughs) I love this part. And I would never have known this. Uh (laughs) I wandered into this random. Great. And I don't know it. So keep going. So he placed the myosin filament, it anchored to the actin and then started bouncing around all over the place because of brownian motion einstein described and explained brownian motion the water molecules are pounding because of their kinetic energy that molecule so it's bouncing all over the place completely randomly the atp molecule supplies the energy to quench that disorder oh into the limited range of motion
0: So, the ATP is like, okay, so the ATP is Gatorade. (laughs)
1: It's the quencher.
0: (laughs) So that you can move better.
1: Right. Right. Now
0: I have my first corporate sponsor.
1: I suddenly realized (laughs) maybe (laughs) I could definitely include this in the program. I had the corresponding limited randomness thing at the biomolecular level to say that biomolecules form a living complex system the way our cells do the way ants do and what they give rise to is the cell now back to the temperature thing the kinetic energy supplied has to be quenchable by that atp but has to be sufficient to cause motion mm-hmm. so if it become too warm the kinetic energy of your mo- of your water molecules becomes too high to quench and so high body temperature makes it impossible for your molecules to organize themselves into your cell structure.
0: Which is why if your fever gets too high, you die.
1: Yes, or if it gets too cold, there's insufficient energy to carry out this movement. Mm -hmm. And so if it gets too cold, you die.
0: They talk about how narrow the band is of atmosphere around the planet necessary to sustain life, but life is a very narrow band
1: in a lot of ways. Right, and mathematically, Complex systems are described as existing at the edge of chaos between chaos and order, fractal chaos, like fractals. It's that narrow band where living systems live and are able to adapt. And nothing is stable within that range. It's always an oscillation, a homeostatic, negative feedback loop oscillation. So we think that the energy you gain from eating propels molecules of your body to do your thing that's not the case the food we eat provides the energy to quench the random disorder of the water environment of our bodies to allow physiology to happen Huh. great so so
0: so, (laughs) so so the next time somebody says i'm hangry i'm going to say no i have quench disorder Yes. Like, oh, wow, oh did, I get, did I get pharmaceutical for that?
1: <laughs> yes. And then short story short, are biomolecules things? No, they're atoms self-organizing. Are atoms things? No, they're just nuclei and uh, you know electron, uh, protons, neutrons, and electrons self-organizing. Are they things? No, they're just subatomic particles. Are they things? Well, no, those are so, just strings or something else. Is it infinite all the way down? No, quantum physics tells us, and this, there's universal agreement amongst quantum physicists, that there is a smallest scale. And what, what you is then that? is a vacuum filled with energy and E equals MC squared, that energy periodically gives rise to mass, whether it's strings or something else they don't agree on. But some of those things will then interact with each other to create subatomic particles, which interact to create other subatomic particles, which become atoms, which become molecules, which become planets and living systems and cells and bodies and galactic structures. And so there is no thing in the universe because everything is simply self-organizing of something smaller until you get down to where it's just emerging out of the vacuum.
0: That's completely magical as far as I'm concerned.
1: And that's how I walk around in the world now. <laughs> but, dude. <laughs> but, the, but, but here's the thing. You can't experience or see that all the time. You have to pick a level of scale at which to perceive things. So at this level of scale, you're a body and I'm a body. And our bodies are interact at the cellular level of scale. And that includes your bacteria, which are 90% of the cells of your body, which anytime you touch anything, you're leaving on a surface for other people to touch and to pick up. So, at the cellular level, where is your boundary? As big and as your. You don't have one. Not really. Right. It, it extends out to your. If you live with other people or pets, The microbiome of all of you is the same microbiome, and you are one living entity that extends beyond each of your individual senses of cells. At the molecular level, where's your boundary? I'm breathing in oxygen from plants, I'm breathing out carbon dioxide that they take in. At the molecular level, The boundary of my body is the entire biomass of the planet. At the atomic level, there is no atom in your body that you did not eat, breathe, or drink from the planet's substance. So are we creatures that live on the surface of the rock, planet Earth? Or are we the substance of planet Earth, which has self-organized its atoms to become living things that think they sit on a rock? So
0: the, the one is the whole and the whole is the one.
1: Exactly. Go down to the atomic level and the quantum level, non-locality, there is no boundary. You are the entire universe. The universe is you. And that's sort of the Buddhist perspective of the absolute. If you go into deep meditation, that kind of meditation is choosing a perspective in which to experience the world.
0: I was going to ask how meditation fit into that and if it allowed you to shift your scale perception.
1: And the Buddhists talk about the world of the relative and the absolute. And you always have to be in one or the other, but cognizant that the other also exists. You can't escape into the absolute because you're missing this piece, vice versa. If you stick stuck in the relative, you have a misperception of the universe because in fact, everything is one. We are not separate. So does that now go back you... to
0: the the famous optical illusions? You always use the one of, are they two faces or a, or a vase? Exactly. It's that kind of principle. And I used to- it's
1: Exactly that, kind I, of that.
0: I rented a room from somebody in my early 20s and in the common area of the house, she had a, a Picasso print of Don Quixote. and it And I would stare at it until it just looked like a bunch of scribbling to me. Because I know that that was the way some people perceived it. And it took a while, but then I could flip back and forth between what I knew it was supposed to look like or maybe how other people saw it. But I couldn't do them simultaneously.
1: It's precisely that. And it's the same thing as in quantum physics is light waves or particles. It depends on the experiment you choose. If you say it's waves, you're missing part of what their nature is. If you say it's particles, you're missing it, but you can't see both at the same time. So is that
0: equivalent of murmuration of birds? Is it this, the birds are the particles, but the murmuration is the wave, it's both and.
1: Right. So the murmuration looks like a thing, but it's birds. The bird looks like a thing, but it's cells. The cells look like things, but they're just molecules in water. Yeah, the they not a thing. There is no thing. But at the same time, everything is a thing at some level of scale. And so one of the practical things I wonder about with people like you, I get a lot of body work. I've worked with traditional deep tissue stuff and I've had shiatsu. I've got a lot of experience getting Rolfed, which is wonderful. I've had some amazing fascia work since I entered the fascia world, (laughs) I've been very lucky. Things are happening there that I cannot explain nor can my practitioners explain what their perceptions are and how they're perceiving and yet perceptions are happening interactions are happening at levels of scale for me i'm not aware of but i know my practitioners are because they sense things and do things and i change and you're not doing it randomly you are I think when you're doing your work, you are bringing your attention to a different level of scale, and thus experiencing my body and your body, not necessarily as separate, because boundaries dissolve at lower scales, and something is happening there, and I want to hear how you would describe your experiences of your practice in these terms
0: there is a meditative quality to the work that I do when I feel like I'm doing it at the best level that I can. And it's an internal meditative quality. And often the person on the treatment table will go into that state as well. It doesn't mean you can't be effective uh, in other circumstances. So I don't want to put that out there as a bias, but there, there is, there is that quality of one might say losing yourself in the other person. But I would say you're, you're meeting that person on a different level. So I may have looked at them a certain way, made a determination that, okay, we're gonna go into the inner muscular septum between here and here, and I'm gonna do this procedure. But once I actually get down to performing that and what my fingers tell me, what I sense and what I feel changes how I do it. I will sometimes find myself 15 minutes later having just followed the path, but not in a linear way like it is on the charting that I have to keep. And they're happy with the result. I'm happy with the result. And I'm thinking, how do I just write what I did? I have no idea. It got the intended result in probably even a little bit better.
1: And trying to observe it, obviously is going to change it because observation changes everything Um, (laughs) yes it does my first experience of that actually was really concrete when i was involved when i first started doing the stem cell stuff and realized cells are trafficking through the body and more and more uh, this became my koan in zen terms i just couldn't shake this awareness of i'd be doing things but i'm thinking my cells are doing things how are my cells doing this and I was walking down 20th Street in, uh, westward on 20th Street in Manhattan and got to a stoplight at Park Avenue. And I, I, I started thinking about this and the light changed and I couldn't step off the curb because I couldn't get my cells to organize. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you can interfere with it if you think about it too closely. Sure. But. Since then, I've been practicing this. You know, Zen practice is this. I think, and it was a, it was actually a, a very profound moment. I was in my zendo, village zendo in New York, by myself meditating one morning, and with this cell thing going on, and I looked up, which I shouldn't have been doing during meditation. <laughs> it's okay. Saw the incense stick turning into the smoke, and I thought, this is what's meant by the Buddhist concept of emptiness, emptiness of inherent existence. That the cell has no inherent existence. The Mm -hmm. body has no inherent existence. Atoms don't have inherent existence. They're all contingent on the way you're observing. They can appear and disappear, depending on where you are and what your perspective is. And starting to practice with that gradually has allowed me to experience that a bit more. And I would love to hear after you go into your work Mm -hmm. at the risk of (laughs) No, let's perturb it. Let's (laughs) perturb
0: it. You know, that's that's how you grow.
1: To see how you become aware of where your awareness and what that means. Yes.
0: I have, as usual, two trains of thought. When I am, when somebody's coming to me, they usually have a specific goal or problem, something that in, in essence, I'm being hired to solve. Uh, to heal, mm-hmm. to to take in a different direction. So I have to look at where things have gotten too dis, uh, where, where the organization has gotten too chaotic or too um, th- there's there's not enough randomness. So there's less ability right. to move. That right. gets into right. an agglomeration of hyaluronin. Can I create an intervention that changes that and introduces new potentials for randomness in their movement that they didn't have before and then how do they organize around that and how do I guide them over a period of a reasonable period of visits to reorganize that in a way that serves them better so that's right No, now that does not answer your in the momentness of my perceptions of my awareness of my awareness, but there is a paper I came across from a couple of years ago and I found out about it from Robert Schleit, where they put a, uh, it was a, a brain MRI, I believe, uh, or an EEG. I'm blanking on it, but to get to the point, they, they didn't just put it on the person a Functional Oh fun, yes. It was a functional MRI. Thank you. It was a functional MRI and they monitored the person giving the touch and the person receiving the touch. And what they observed was the person receiving the touch, a different area of their brain fired when the person giving the touch had to pay attention on the quality of touch, the pressure, the texture, those kinds of tactile variables. The other group was played a series of audio pulses and they were told, touch this place here, but pay attention to the audio pulses in your headphones. It did not light up the same places in the brain as right. the person yeah right. and that just blew me away because it's like okay, hey, we fmri the power of intention i think
1: and in yeah. that, yeah. that became, i mean but yes i will
0: be happy to come back and talk to you about my awareness of my awareness of that focus even though i know it's going to change it that was a lot that was a new well <laughs> 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 but, and this all fits but, into your but, book somehow right <laughs> you're going to talk about your book we're going to yeah yeah yeah
1: yeah Oh, okay. So, so basically, um, this whole, it's a short little book. It's going to be 10 little chapters mm-hmm. of just a handful of pages each that goes through exactly what I described. You know, introduce these ideas of complexity theory. Numbers matter. There's no global sensing. Homeostasis. Limited randomness. And out of that, you create an understanding of how the world around us manifests. At every level of scale and what that means for the idea of the self, where are our boundaries and our notions of what can we know and not know. And eventually, when you get down to the chapters nine and 10, what I discussed with you is what science can discuss, then there's all this stuff beyond that that science can't discuss and yet we know there's something there. And so that's where you get into these metaphysical links, like the Buddhist stuff I talk about, but Jewish mysticism, Hindu metaphysics, blah, 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 shamanism. Mm -hmm. So all of that in one little book. It's working title right now is Notes on Complexity.
0: Big ideas need room to resonate. So I like the idea of a smaller book.
1: Right. Bingo. So I'm imagining, and so are my publishers, Spiegel and Grau. It's a new publishing company. They're announcing it in the next two weeks or so in Publishers Weekly. By the time this airs, it will have been announced. I'm hoping, I don't know what their target date for delivery is yet. We're working on that. But hopefully before the end of the year or early next year, this will be out. And the idea is present the concepts and the basic framework and a few hints But the joy for me when I talk about this stuff is that I put these basic ideas out there. It takes about 40 minutes in a formal talk, whether it's academic or to a group of fifth graders or to yogis at a yoga center or whatever. Then I just go, "Okay, have at it. And people come up with the most extraordinary things that I've never thought about or heard about.
0: We haven't even touched the inner system. I think we need to have, I think we need to do a part two where we talk about the interstitium. You bring the interstitium. I'll bring my reflections on my awareness of my awareness and we'll mix it up again. Um, I do love to do, do Neil, it's been fantastic talking to you today. I have a feeling we could go on for several more hours but uh, we both have other things to get to, I am sure. I love to have you back on the program sometime.
1: I love talking to you. I loved talking to you when I met you in Berlin. And every chance we've had a chance to overlap, I would love to do this. Again. Okay, we there's will plenty do, more.
0: We'll <laughs> do it again. We will do it again. Thanks so much for coming by. This is David Lasondak. Thank you for listening to Body Talk. If you enjoyed what you heard, please hit the subscribe button. And if you'd like to become a sponsor of the show, go to Patreon.com/slash BodyTalkRadio. This is David Lasondek saying, remember, it's all connected. See you next week.